Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for March 23rd, 2014. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, A Great Chasm, Fixed? In Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, is an important contribution to Christianity, forcing especially the theologically conservative evangelical branch of Christianity of which he is a part to reevaluate how we read Scripture. The book subtitled, a book about heaven and hell and the fate of every person who lived, shakes the foundations, calling into question the black and white up or down, in or out theological mentality on which many of us were raised. Bell has been denounced as a universalist, meaning everyone goes to heaven, and condemned for not being condemning enough for denying the reality of hell, but he never says that, not in my reading. Bell's book is not a universalist manifesto, nor does he deny the reality of hell in this life or the next. He does ask us to read more carefully, however, when hell is mentioned in Scripture. If you've spent much time in the South, you have probably heard a hellfire and damnation sermon from the text I read today, been told that this is a vivid description of the reality that awaits all who do not accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Just like the rich man, they're going to spend every single day wishing for a drop of water to quench the fire, get right or get left, turn or burn. But Rob Bell says correctly, we have read incorrectly. If that's all you get from the passage, we have read incorrectly. It is about hell just not that kind of hell. The former megachurch pastor says of this story, the gospel Jesus spreads in the book of Luke has as one of its main themes that Jesus brings a social revolution in which the previous systems and hierarchies of sinner and saved and up and down don't mean what they used to. God is doing a new work through Jesus, calling all people to human solidarity. All are equals, children of the God who shows no favoritism. A social revolution. These are not the words of a liberal, but they echo what biblical scholars have long noted, that Luke in line with centuries-old biblical wisdom, seeks to teach us that God has a priority for the poor. The story about the rich man and Lazarus, Bell continues, was an incredibly sharp warning for Jesus' audience to rethink how they viewed the world because there would be serious consequences for ignoring the Lazaruses outside their gates. To reject those Lazaruses was to reject God. Another theme of the gospel is that following Jesus means learning to give 
your life away, all of it. We do not gain by hanging on to what is ours, by pursuing a life of more and more, by tenacious clinging to what I have earned, what I deserve. The Jesus way is a way of life through death. Only as those who learn to die to the desires of self and for the sake of others, only those who lose their life will find it. It is the way of the cross. So in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Bell says, we find the rich man in hell. He's alive in death, but in profound torment because he's living with the realities of not properly dying, the kind of death that actually leads a person into the only kind of life that's actually worth living. Now this is complicated truth, and Bell wonders how you would teach such complicated truth, social revolution, sacrificial living, And he says the best way to convey such a truth is with a vivid story. Throw in some gruesome details. Punctuate the torment that man is living with graphic imagery of flames and suffering. It is torment because he has failed to care for the poor man at his gate. But do not confuse this story as a prediction of something that awaits in the next life. Suffering and torment is reality here and now, and failing the poor will be hell forever. There is a great chasm fixed, but Luke is not trying to tell us about a chasm between a physical place in the next life called heaven and another temporal one called hell. He's trying to get our attention To say, as Henry George puts it, poverty is the open-mouthed, relentless hell which yawns beneath civilized society, and it is hell enough. What we who are rich need to realize is that the wealth we enjoy, whether at their expense or with indifference to their plight, imperils our own souls too. In a society that fostered racial slavery, the master was no freer than the slave. The humanity of both was imperiled by such disparity. The same is true of economic disparity. There is only one boat, and we will sink or swim together. In an article called Mind the Gap, Commentator Harlan Beckley says, our choice is between a society based on reciprocal respect and solidarity and a society that leaves many people behind. Radical inequality is hell. It's just more difficult for some of us to feel today. In this Lenten series of social issues, of social justice, today's topic is disparity versus diversity. It's interesting to note how quickly any conversation of economic disparity, of income inequality, becomes confused with income equality, 
with equal distribution of wealth, i.e., with communism. It happened in our discussion on Wednesday night, and I smiled. Someone says, but Russ, I'm not a communist. And I said, I'm not a communist either. Did you hear that? I didn't say that, and I won't say that this morning. I will not tell you that the ideal is to take everyone's money and put it in a big pot and divide it evenly, even though that was the economic system of the early church, as recorded in the book of Acts. Diversity is a gift of God, and that diversity comes in many ways. Everyone doesn't need, everyone doesn't even want the same amount of money. Not everyone wants to be rich, but no one wants to be poor either. Today's topic is not disparity versus equality. It's disparity versus diversity. Recognizing the diversity of God's people does not mean we should not understand the detrimental impact to us all of a growing inequality among us. Now much has been written about this in recent years and the facts are easily found, but let me remind you of a few of them this morning. In 1976, the top 1% of Americans took home 9% of the nation's total income. Today, they earn nearly 25% of every dollar made. And that 1% holds a full 40% of the country's total wealth. The bottom 80% of the population has only 7% of the country's wealth combined. The top 1% has 40% of the wealth. The bottom 80% has 7%. The bottom half of the American population owns only one half percent of all stocks, bonds, and mutual funds traded. The top one percent owns a full half of all those investments. Now sometimes when people start talking like this, we are accused or warned against the perils of social engineering. But if that logic holds, that policies and legislation might have the power of redistributing income from the top to the bottom, it would be intellectually disingenuous and morally indefensible not to recognize that such engineering works both ways. In other words, if the income of the top 1% of Americans has increased 16% in four decades, are we to believe this is just because they have worked so much harder than everybody else? Or might the system, might the system have leaned in their favor over those same years? Harlan Beckley suggests that changing social norms, not economic productivity, explain the growing difference. No one is suggesting that many who are wealthy have not worked very hard for what they have earned, nor that they should not be rewarded for their creativity and industry. But in an article on income disparity in the U.S., 
Adam Mordecai puts it in perspective in this way. If you boil down the picture of total wealth in this country to a representative 100 people, the CEO in that picture earns 380 times more than the average employee. Not the janitor in his company, the average employee. 380 times more earned income than that between the top uh, paid staffer and the janitor. The average worker would need to work more than a month to own what the CEO makes in one hour. In a sermon on this issue, Mary Ann McKibben Dana says, Conservatives and liberals may differ on how to address the issue of wealth inequality. I think that is the way it should be. We need a vigorous discussion on the issue. Conservatives and liberals may differ, but the issue should concern them both. Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians. Societies risk becoming unstable the greater the disparity between rich and poor. A book entitled The Spirit Level, Why Greater Equality Makes Society Stronger, says the impacts of inequality show up in poorer health, lower educational attainment, higher crime rates, lower spending of social capital, and lower cooperation and trust of government. Sound like any nation you know? A 2011 survey by the Public Religion Research Institute showed that 53% of white evangelical Americans, that is, the most conservative of conservative voters, believes that social ills can be mitigated with a more equal distribution of income. Even 35% of Republicans and 37% of Tea Partiers believe as much. The issue and concern of wealth and inequity is not new, and it's not going away anytime soon. 800 years before Jesus spoke on the issue, the prophets of Israel we're doing the same. Alas, said Amos, alas for you who lounge on beds of ivory and lounge on your couches and eat lambs from the flock. But is this just woe to you who are rich? Again, I think we have to read more carefully. Alas for those who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The problem is not with wealth per se. The problem is when money, too much of it and too little of it, separates us. And too much of it and too little of it will always separate us. There is a great chasm today in this great country as there was in Israel 2,800 years ago, the question I ask you today is, is that chasm fixed? The answer, the answer lies with you and me. It lies with voters, investors, 
board members, participants in this great experiment called democracy, are we grieving over the ruin of Joseph? Grieving over the plight of the poor growing in our midst? In the 1960s, our president announced a war on poverty. An increasing disparity makes it seem as if the war is on the poor themselves. The U.S. Census Bureau reported in November 2012 that more than 16% of all Americans lived in poverty, almost one in five of American children. One out of every five American children lives in poverty. Nearly three million children live in homes with incomes of less than $2 a day. A 2013 UNICEF report ranked the United States as having the second highest relative child poverty rate in the developed world. I hope those statistics are as appalling to you as they are to me. Are we grieving over the ruin of the United States of America? The chasm between the rich man and Lazarus will be fixed. Will, uh, excuse me, it will be fixed until we fix it. In our hearts and with our policies, and it will be hell for all until we do. Until we grieve over the ruin of Joseph. May it be so. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.